0: They gave me, without knowledge, the need or consent, 100 MCGs of fentanyl, which I would specifically said in the hot ER that I didn't want. Like I say, I started feeling funny. I didn't know what happened. I thought I must be dying as I felt like I was above watching what was happening. I'm laying on the table. I was cold, wasn't sure what's going on there was intense pressure, like something was sitting on me. Plus then they're pushing those tools in through your groin, so they're putting tremendous pressure on your groin, pushing those tools up through your arteries. Medical
1: error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds M.E. as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians, and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution. Some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello humanity, I'm Scott Simpson, podcast host of Medical Error Interviews. When Larry was doubled over with chest pain, his wife Jane drove him to the nearest ER where he was diagnosed with a heart attack. The health care Larry received over the next few hours was motivated by profit and punishment. At each turn, hospitals sought to maximize their profits, including fraud and falsifying medical records, on the treatment Larry received. The hospital staff made choices, always the most expensive choice, like sending Larry to another hospital by air ambulance instead of road ambulance or choosing high-cost, highly-invasive medical procedures over the least costly, least invasive medication Larry actually requested. In spite of Larry repeatedly stating he only wanted a minimum dose of painkillers, the hospital injected him with multiple painkillers, rendering him incapable of making informed consent. Larry was transported to the local Catholic hospital, But while much of this was going on, Jane and their son were intentionally and overtly being kept away from Larry by the hospital chaplain. And while the chaplain was receiving updates on Larry's condition, he wasn't sharing the info with Jane and their son. Hours went by, and during that time, Jane repeatedly asked the chaplain to leave so that she and her son could have some privacy and speak freely. He refused each time jane couldn't understand why the staff were being so openly hostile toward her and her son the next day larry couldn't understand why the staff had ignored his statement to be treated with medication and instead implanted several costly devices in his body devices that cause side effects and will probably contribute to his death but when Larry and Jane got a hold of Larry's medical records, they began to understand that his hospital care and treatment was not based on his medical need, it was based on profit and religious punishment. But the punishment was actually started by the first hospital. Larry and Jane share their medical experience that has multiple layers profiteering, medical errors. Negligence, Religious Bigotry, Fraud, Homophobia, Deceit, Denial. If you thought hospitals were benevolent and their staff empathetic, you will think differently when you hear all that happened to Larry and Jane in Part 1 of my interview. If you would like to support the podcast, you can hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or any of the other major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error or living with chronic complex illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here is part one of my interview with Larry and Jane and a note of caution that some folks may be triggered by their experiences with the healthcare system. Okay, so my first question always is, where did each of you grow up and what were your childhoods like?
0: Well, I grew up in uh central Indiana. Lived here in central Indiana all my life. I grew up, my father was a uh, contractor. So I uh, you know, I grew up uh, in the construction industry. I have one brother and I have a uh, half brother and half sister.
1: And what was your health like as a child?
0: Wealthy, never broke any bones, uh, you know, the, the normal measles, mumps, you know, poison ivy, that kind of stuff. But uh, fortunately, as a kid, you know, I never, I took some falls, but I never broke any bones or anything like that. Uh, and I, was, I was basically healthy. Great. Okay. So typical kid. And how about you, Jane?
2: Um, I grew up south of him in central Indiana my father worked for the big pharmaceutical company here in Indiana my parents got divorced and after that life was pretty much hell oh how so because they fought constantly
1: even though they were divorced
2: oh yeah Yeah.
1: and then how did you meet Larry
2: um I met him through where I worked I worked for the state, and he was one of the computer people on contract.
1: Okay, and then how long have you folks been together?
2: '87 when, when we, we married. got married. Yeah. So yeah. in 1987, we got married. We have kids. We have a son. He's a teacher, and we have a daughter who uh, is in a business with me. She does sewing and costume sewing and specialty sewing. Okay. So I do quilting and sewing and embroidery, plus I work with him.
1: So today we're going to talk about Larry's experience with the healthcare system. Why don't you start us off when that whole situation started?
0: Well, that was... uh, August the 11th of uh, 2018, Saturday night, about 7 o'clock. I'd been working around the house all day. Jane came downstairs to the family room about 7 o'clock and found me kind of on the floor, hunched over the couch. I was having uh, chest pains, having difficulty breathing, pain level probably about, you know, a 7 she you know said well we did some things we did some things to try to mitigate it and
2: he had been diagnosed with bronchitis
0: yeah previously a few months earlier and kind of thought i was over it she you know says well i think you're having a heart attack and we we need to go to the hospital i didn't really want to go but she said, you know, well, we're we're going.
1: <laughs> How come you so, didn't want to go?
0: Well, I just uh you know, I you know, I've been more or less healthy through my life and you know, very few medical problems and and I really just um uh, prefer, uh not prefer not to. It just was um, not your habit. Yeah, it just you know, yeah, it wasn't my habit. Um and uh, We prefer
2: as little medical intervention as possible. We mostly believe in healthy things, supplements, vitamins.
1: So I've only um, sort of seen heart attacks acted on TV or in movies or stuff. So what was that experience like? Was it a sudden onset or
0: how did it well yeah it was after dinner and yeah it kind of came on and i kind of thought maybe it was indigestion or something and you know i mean i kind of knew the symptoms of a heart attack but you know it
2: wasn't that uh, it wasn't, bad. I wasn't
0: having you know the severe chest pains i i wasn't having uh, you know the pain down my arms um uh, uh you know Irregular heartbeat or you know anything like that it uh,
2: blood pressure was fine during this
0: uh, We took my blood pressure and and it was fine um, You know, so I just I Really wasn't sure I really kind of thought it was maybe indigestion uh, I'd ate a little bit more for dinner than you know what I usually do higher hydrocarb- uh, carb rates that mm-hmm. night because it was a meal that uh, i enjoyed and i'd been working hard all day so i figured you know hey I, but then you know i was having some difficulty breathing and heaviness in the chest and and some pain and discomfort then and and i found that if i kind of on the floor on kind of hunched over the couch that that temporarily kind of helped it and and then i got back up and sit down on the couch but you know within a matter of a few minutes it came right back I, you know, still wasn't believing that it, it was a heart attack, but you know, we went to the local emergency room.
1: And did I hear right that while this was going on you didn't bother to call Jane to she sort of found you?
0: Yeah, uh no, I didn't bother to, to call her. She was upstairs and and uh you know, it hadn't been going on maybe Eight to ten minutes before she came downstairs.
2: Actually, it started around eight o'clock. And so, it was going on a little bit longer, actually.
0: So Just
1: you saying. decided that uh, you're going to get medical help. Did you call an ambulance or did you guys go there?
0: No. Uh, by the time we'd called an ambulance and, and they'd got here, we were there. We live in the country. Because we live in the country, just outside of town. So from here to the hospital is probably about seven minutes. And uh, so by the time they come across town to get here, you know, we were already there. Here at home, I said, you know, my, I, in pain, I was, a would say on a scale of one to ten, they always ask you, it was about a seven. And then when we got to the uh ER room, I would say maybe a six, it had, it had decreased a little bit. Um, they they took, uh, took us, my wife went in and told them I, you know, was having a heart attack, she thought, and so they brought out.
2: Uh, you took him right in. Took
0: me right in. And uh, uh, doctor came in, you know, see me, they, I, First thing I did was told them that I had uh, a very low tolerance to uh, painkillers, and that uh, you know I you know I didn't want any fentanyl or any versed or anything like that. And and the doctor said, well, would you agree to you know a small dose of morphine just to kind of help take the edge off of this? While we find out what's going on. So I agreed to that. And Jeannie was there, you know, when I agreed to that. but I did tell him, you know, that uh, those types of drugs uh, you know, create uh, issues with uh, in the past, one, another time had created issues with uh, my blood pressure, that they raise it substantially. Uh, that they create uh, erratic breathing Uh, they nauseate me Uh, you know and you know one time I had my wisdom teeth out and I took the dose that the dentist said to take on the painkillers that they give you and you know I was out of it for two days you know so I just so I had to back off of that and cut down to a quarter or half of the dose to be able to even function, so I told them all that, and you know they were writing, so I, you know, I thought they were writing all that down. So after that, that morphine, a few, you know, a little bit after taking that, then my pain level was down to about a one or a dull ache. So uh, they did diagnose that I was having a heart attack, and that they were, you know not equipped to treat on site, that I would have to go to another hospital uh, for treatment and to find out what needed to be done. So they asked me if I wanted to go to their north or their south, and I said, well, you know, I, I don't really want to go to a teaching hospital. I, I I don't want, you know, rooms full of people around, you know, uh, using me as a guinea pig basically and so I asked you know where else we could go and so they they mentioned this other hospital and I knew that had heard that that other hospital I remembered then had you know a cardiac heart. Uh, center had a heart center so I said okay you know that that's where I would want to go and in the meet, he was talking Well, you know if you've had a heart attack that there you know some of the treatment options you know could be open heart surgery or angioplasty or use medicine to uh uh bust the the clots and uh and i said well you know I don't believe in invasive stuff, that I would prefer to try the, the drugs to bust the clots first. And so the doctor said, well, you know, when you arrive there, then you'll they'll diagnose you and you'll have the opportunity to discuss these uh, treatment options. And so uh, I said, well, you know, my wife needed to be there and that, you know, we make all life decisions together and uh, you know, both of us, you know, had to be present uh, during all that. And he said, well, yeah, they would. The morphine, you know, even, you know, it kind of took the edge off, but it kind of made me a little slow on on thinking. And cause in records later, we found out that it was four MGs uh, that they had given me. So I was kind of feeling the effects of that. So he said he would make uh, arrangements for transport and it'd be either ground or air, whichever you know, came first. I'd arrived there, you know, around nine according to the records, about nine thirty-seven uh, that night. And according to the records, they contacted the air ambulance at nine fifty-six. And according to the records, there was no record of a ground ambulance ever being contacted, uh, even though the EMTs were just right down the street.
2: And I checked with them later and they were available. They could have taken him and they said that is the protocol that they should have been notified.
0: But you know, we believe that they chose to use their own uh, air ambulance uh, because it's owned by them and you know, it's more expensive. it's always about you know the money the business aspect of it is what I believe so we found according to the records that they never even contacted a a ground ambulance Uh, you know not even their own and they had one of their own we saw sitting there when they took me out to the helicopter
1: so their priority wasn't your health or being efficient it was about
0: padding their bill yeah yeah, yeah. because that was uh you know the air ambulance uh didn't get there till ten thirty eight p.m according to the records
2: so they say that time is muscle saved well there was an hour in there that we just kind of almost an hour that we just sit in there and waited and No one ever said anything to us. I mean, they never said, they never explained anything except, you know, you could have these three things. They didn't tell us what those three things were, the risk, nothing. They led us to believe that whole time that he was going to have a a decision to make when he got to the other hospital.
0: The air ambulance arrived, the pilot and, and the two medical people, you know, they all come in and so I was sitting there, they asked me what my pain level was, and I said it was one, you know, just a dull ache, and they wrote down in their records that it was an eight. Uh, Jane heard me say that it was just a one, just a dull ache.
2: And the doctor noted it in his ER records that it was a one. He had noted that, so.
1: But the air ambulance guys put it down as an eight. An yes. eight.
2: I mean, at eight, he would have been on the floor in pain. They noted.
0: Yeah, that, that's what they wrote down. And in their records, they even wrote that I was calmly sitting on the gurney. Uh, they said that I looked like I was in pain. Uh, but I remember I was kind of deep in thought and the effects of the morphine uh wondering you know what it was it really a heart attack uh you know mm-hmm. even though that's what they were telling me it was and and okay now what's gonna happen now but I wasn't rolling around on the floor in pain uh why, i would like it would have been if it had been an eight so basically they loaded me onto the gurney hel- and took me out to the helicopter and And uh, Jane, you know, got the car and her and my son left for uh, the other hospital. The helicopter, according to the records, left the hospital about 10.55 p.m. and arrived at the other hospital about 11.09. Now, on the helicopter ride, I was given protective ear gear, you know.
2: Sound deafening. Sound
0: deafening earmuff things. I could, but I could still hear the loudness of the helicopter. Um, you know, they never spoke to me again. But they listed several more times in the pain in the records that I was at an eight pain level. And according to the records, before we even took off, they gave me, without my knowledge, the need or consent, a hundred mcgs of fentanyl, which I had specifically said, you know, in the ER that I didn't want.
1: What impact yeah. did that have on you? With all that oh, Uh
0: I didn't know it, but you know, uh, you know. Like I say, I started feeling funny. I didn't know what happened. Uh, I thought I must be dying, as I felt like I was above watching what was happening. Uh, it remained like that, you know, from that Saturday night until late on Sunday. I was just totally wiped out, incoherent could remember, you know, bits and pieces of things, uh, but uh, you know, just kind of a zombie, basically. I do remember some things, uh, you know, when we uh, landed at uh, the other hospital and they took us off the helicopter at the helipad, there was nobody there from the hospital to meet us and they were looking around and nobody was around and they finally flagged down a a hospital employee in the parking lot that was getting in their car and that person uh, got us in through a side door and we're kind of wandering around the hallways and i remember them uh finally somebody approached them and Asked you know what they were doing and they said that they were uh looking for the cath lab
1: what's the cath lab
0: well that i didn't have any idea you know i wasn't familiar with the terminology but i remember that's what they said they, they was looking for
2: so that you know they knew where they were supposed to take him
0: when we got into the cath lab uh the helicopter team with Basically, the pilot, with the pilot in there observing, uh, they took me off of the gurney and put me onto this metal table, and they took off their their equipment because they had done an IV, two, uh, IVs. two IVs. I had an IV port in each arm, and so they left the IV ports, but they took their EKG. EKG and their bag, uh, IV bag, and that stuff off. Immediately, some women that was in that room, you know, didn't ask anything. They just started stripping my clothes off of me. And uh, and then later I found out, you know, they took all my clothes off of me and uh, dumped them into a red hazmat bag. Here's the bag. A garbage bag. Hazmat garbage bag, you know, and, you know, later when we had talked to the hospital, they said, well, we have patient bags that your clothing goes in. It, well, I'm sorry, my clothing didn't go into a patient bag. They denied that they would do that. You know, and this kind of infers to, you know, how they treated me. They they didn't ask permission to do anything. They just, you know, stripped me and and I couldn't voice any con, any concern because I just was I was so out of it.
2: He he told us that his arms felt like lead, his legs felt like lead. He and that's what fentanyl does; it paralyzes you. That's the why they use it because it paralyzes you and it makes you like, oh well.
0: Very compliant. Yeah. Compliant, yeah. submissive. Yeah.
2: Along with versive.
0: And you know, while they they were doing things to me, I could hear others talking in the phone. And you know, I, I heard somebody say about sending a chaplain to the family, and I, I thought, oh well if I died, you know, because I really didn't know. I just so it's kinda like I was that floating above, you know, and just wasn't in control. You know, I was Uh, scared Uh, you know I wanted Jane uh, so I could find out what uh, you know was going on but then you know they I thought I thought uh, you know well maybe I I had died looking back through the medical records according to the records that uh, you know I probably laid there for about 25 naked uh, minutes totally naked they never talked to me during this time their records they recorded my pain levels being a five but you know i didn't have any pain you know i was the drug you know it completely erased any pain that i might have felt so and they, they, you know, they never asked me at someone at some point somebody said well we've got to shave him and you know no well i'm must be alive you know but you know why why are they why are they wanting to shave me uh we haven't had any tests we haven't discussed any options uh but i i couldn't couldn't get myself to voice to say anything and at some point they put uh two more ivs in me ports So I now had two IV ports in the bend of each arm. Uh, I discovered that on on Sunday. And there was no notes in the record Mm -hmm. of who put the other two IV ports in. Nothing in the records.
1: So they're Um, not communicating with you. You're really objectified. You're just an object that they're working
0: on and not really a person. Not, yeah, not really a person, just an object. You know, I really had no concept of time, how much time had passed or anything. I remember them putting some kind of a blue sheets on me. I could hear them talking and laughing all the time. But then, you know, looking at the record, you know, after they, they noted when they put the blue sheets on me, and then they said they had a, a signed consent form and they input it into the system at 11.30 p.m. The consent is noted, and it's noted on the chart. But then the consent form was then signed by two of the women in the cath lab at 11.35, saying I had verbally said in my own words I was having an emergent cath. I have no idea what an emergent cath at that point in time was. So how could I have said those words? I never signed the form, even though in the records, they said I was alert times three, I think it said. Mm-hmm. Alert uh, times three, so hyper alert.
2: Person, place, and thing. He, They said he was alert to, just like you and I are right now, they said that that's what he was. He had been given four MGs of morphine by that time, he'd been given... 150 mcgs of fentanyl by that time plus 1 mg of bursa now you tell me they lied I mean they flat-out lied CMS admitted that the consent was done by them and only by them after he had been drugged
1: CMS
2: Center for Medicare Medicaid Services it's the government watchdog arm, if <laughs> you call them that.
1: And they said what?
2: That they agreed he didn't consent. They said that he was drugged before the consent was ever done by, by only the hospital. He never participated. But then they said that any reasonable person wouldn't, wouldn't say no to a gold standard of treatment they said he should just focus on being, being glad he's alive. Medical battery doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, it's hard not to think. You should be glad that they didn't kill you.
2: Well, they could have, they almost did. He, in the medical records, which we'll talk about later, there was an episode. Yeah, okay. He was stable up to that time, okay?
0: In fact, in the medical records, after, you know, Noted there shortly after I had arrived, one doctor had said, "Well, had said, well, he thought that I should be uh, put in a room, and you know, it wasn't an emergency that they could deal with it the next day. But see, they'd already called in this cath team.
1: Okay, so what is the cath
0: on that table?" they have uh, an x-ray machine above you that basically uh, shows them your heart and everything and from the groin all the way to your chin basically and they either they go in through your groin if they're not experienced if they're not experienced if they're experienced they go in through the wrist because there's less risk to the patient
2: go in with
0: a camera they go in with a uh thin flexible wire wire it does
2: have a camera on the end it's that's called angiogram when they shoot dye into you then they send that camera up on a wire and they look around and see and then an angioplasty is when they actually are going to go in and bust blood clots or open an artery up with a balloon. And PCI is another name for angioplasty, that they go up doing all that, except they put in a little piece of metal mesh, and that's called a stent.
1: And that mesh is supposed to hold the blood vessel or the artery open.
2: Yeah, Yeah. except that the stent itself has a habit of forming a blood clot again at the point of entry of the stent because your artery will forever think that there's damage and it will forever send plaque to that place. And once plaque goes, then platelets come and then you get a blockage. And if that happens, then you're most likely gonna have another heart attack and that heart attack will probably kill you.
0: To go back, so they clearly didn't have uh sign consent i'm laying on the table i was cold wasn't sure what's going on there was intense pressure like something was sitting on me because they got the x-ray plus then they're pushing those tools in through your groin so they're putting tremendous pressure on your groin pushing those tools up through your arteries you know said and done what they did was they put two stents in uh, because they said two arteries were blocked. They put two stents in, so now I've got two stents that I'm going to have to live with the rest of my life that is probably going to kill me at some point in time. And There was another artery that was 38% blocked, that they didn't do anything with it.
2: They'll save it for later.
0: Uh, so, get more money if you have another operation, yeah, repeat yeah. business. So, I'm there on the table, and they must have finished up. I remember one of the nurses who poked a pill down my mouth and told me to swallow it. Like well, you really, you and I was laying, you know, flat on my back, which so it's hard to swallow a pill laying flat on your back.
2: Well, they removed the drapes, and he's laying there entirely naked again and he's freezing cold, he... he. he... Oh,
0: yeah, and at one point in time during the, the procedure, I was so cold, I was literally shaking. And according to the records, uh, there was an episode with my uh, blood pressure about that time uh, where it uh, dropped uh, severely. You know, at that time, I can't remember. They gave me something else.
2: Well, during that time, they said that he went into cardiogenic shock. That means a cardiogenic shock is defined as low blood pressure for over 30 minutes and all these other symptoms. He did not. They gave him all this other these drugs, and it was just like a, a blimp. Now, we don't think it was cardiogenic shock. We think it was due to the massive amounts of fentanyl because we told them Originally, that it would make his blood pressure raise lower, that he had issues with it. Or it could have been what they call a bagel reaction, that because he was so scared, so stressed, it could have been a combination of both the drugs and being scared, but something went wrong. And at the same time that happened, they were doing what they call an angiojet, where it's kind of like a rotor rooter device that goes up through your like that and it's throwing out the blood clots and they were doing that at the same time so and this guy who did this is not experienced they put him on call so that they can gain the experience through unwilling victims so that then they can go build their practice so you know he wasn't experienced don't know why but that that's what they called it but really don't think it was
0: so you know they pumped me full of all these these drugs and because they say you know they don't want you to feel any pain uh, but yet uh, the nurse told me well we're gonna uh, put some sutures in you now and this is gonna hurt and man yeah it did it hurt they did three different places they, they basically sutured me up, but they also had put a pump in uh, to pump, help my heart. To pump, give it a rest. To give it a rest, to pump. And they sutured that pump to the inside of my leg. And they sutured a temporary pacemaker to the other
2: side of his leg. See, they went into both of his groin areas for some reason, usually it's just one, but they went into both of his. So both of those things they sewed to his thigh you know how sensitive your thigh skin is well they sewed those to him and protocol says they're supposed to use a numbing agent they didn't and they told him it was going to hurt like they enjoyed making it hurt I mean why would you do that and we'll go into our reasons why later because there was something we did not know until we received the medical record from the first hospital as an explanation why all this happened
0: yeah and so uh i remember you know after the suture is laying there on the table i'm not sure for how long but uh you know it had to be for a while because they were doing other things in the room and finally they put something, used something under me to put me onto a gurney. And they just threw a gown over the top of me and then a sheet. And they wheeled me out into the hall where I saw Jane and my son, you know, for the first time since the other hospital. And only saw him for a few seconds. I couldn't speak. I couldn't, you know, raise my hand, to, you know, try and hold her hand. Or, or anything they they took me to uh an icu room uh, well a ccu room they called it coronary cardiac care they took me into that room and was getting ready to transfer me off of the gurney and they took the sheet off and uh i remember the nurse in the room she was all bent out of shape because the uh, gown that they'd thrown over me was not the right gown. It's not the gown that they're using in CCU. So she had to run off to find the right gown, leaving me there on that gurney naked again. So, you know, they transferred me to the bed they did some things for me and then she put the gown on me but she left it pulled up to around my navel. And that's where it stayed for I don't know how long. But she was trying to hook up the the equipment, the uh, the pump and the IVs and the uh, heart monitor and the pacemaker and all that stuff And she was just complaining about, there's too many wires. I don't have enough connections. I don't know how to do this to hook it up. And then all of a sudden, the the room filled up with people that later I learned were IT techs and other nurses. So you're naked from the navel down. Yeah. Yeah.
2: The curtain wasn't drawn. So.
0: And so... Uh, And during this time period, she said that, you know, hey, I needed to urinate, and if I didn't or couldn't, that she'd have to fully cath me, put a catheter in. There I am peeing into a bottle in front of a whole room of people, and they're talking, they're looking, uh, there's some laughter going on, and then, you know, afterwards she you know used a cold wet cloth to demonstrate to them how she was cleaning me up like a baby and they laughed and and then it's during that time period that a woman came in about blood so she's also drawing blood and she's entertained while i'm there naked
1: so it's like you're an object of amusement
2: entertainment no. form, yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. And just sort of then, that juxtaposition between you being very sick, not knowing if you're going to die, not really knowing what's going on because they've drugged you so much, juxtaposed with their concern with the wires and their frivolity and laughing. It's just really hard to reconcile those two things yeah. going on in the same room in that context.
0: Yeah, it is. Um, You know, and at the same time, then you've got uh, another nurse or another woman who's coming in and she's asking me questions like, Does your spouse sexually molest you? while she was actually, you know, participating in the molesting of me by being in there. And that's kind of what stuck in my mind. I just felt humiliated, like, Well, maybe I could die.
2: Well, you said you wanted to die at that point because <clears throat> wanted wanted
0: it to stop
2: is what he said.
0: And uh, you know, I just you know, where's where's Jane? Why isn't she here? And then finally, you know, I heard her voice, and I I could hear her and the nurse having a, a tense conversation about who my wife was. And, you know, at that point, the, the nurse reached over and she yanked the sheet up from the bottom of the bed when Jane came in, came over there. So she yanked the sheet up and covered me. She didn't pull the gown down. She just yanked the sheet up. They told us
2: that it would be 15 minutes because they have to do that secret ritual of putting the patient in the room that no one who's not an angel can see happening. So... They put us in a waiting room and said 15 minutes. Two hours went by, there wasn't a soul in that hospital. My son's a type one diabetic. From everything that we'd been through earlier, which I'll talk about later, his blood sugar was just going up and he was, and so he said the next person I hear, I see I'm going to grab. And so we waited and waited, and all of a sudden, he shot up like a light. Then I turned, and there was this <coughs> nurse walking out of a set of double doors behind us, going away from us, and he ran. He, he, he's quick. He got her. He, he actually got her. And she started laughing at him. He never said anything to her. She said, I know who you're here to see, and just was laughing. And by that time, old me, I get up, and I'm up there. She said, I'll take you back to see him but his I'm not his nurse but his nurse has been busy because she didn't know how to hook up his equipment so there was a room full of people in there helping her but but now you can go back and she buzzed the door and told us to go through the doors take a right go down the long hall his room was the last on the left and all the time she was just laughing and so We get in there and my son says, I don't know where my diabetic supplies are at. And I said, you better go quick and find them because there are needles and everything in there. So he leaves and I go down the hall. And as I entered the room, the curtain wasn't drawn. I could see my husband's feet. He had on the same socks that he had on earlier, black and gray. And as I look up, I can see that he's naked up to his gowns pulled up above in his, his stomach and there's a leech blonde woman standing at his right side with her back towards me just working on the computer and she must have heard me because she's turned around and she was smiling until she realized it wasn't who she was looking for. And she said she yanked the cover up and she told me to get out. And I said, why do I need to get out? I'm his wife. No, you're not. I am. Well, what's your name? And she start, She turned around to the computer and, you know, was bringing up different screens and stuff. And, and she said, don't you have a first name? I said, I do. Well, what is it? And it burns me up one side down the other because I don't, I don't let him address me by my first name, I, I'm a Mrs. or Ms. or somebody, you don't have permission because we're not friends. And I told her, and I could see he was waking up, and I could see he was like, oh, no. She was looking around in her pages, and all of a sudden, then she turns around, she starts laughing again, and she grabs the sheet, and she starts laughing all the while she's saying, "I." There was a room full of people in here. I didn't know how to hook up his equipment. I I need to arrange the sheet so he's not exposed because I don't know how not to expose him to check all this stuff. And she just kept laughing and rearranging the sheet. And then she's like, oh, I have it. And she said, I can put it on this side and then I can do this on this side. And I'm in complete shock because uh, the whole night We've been kept in the dark. Uh, when I arrived there, we went up to the desk, like we were told in the emergency room and asked for him. They said, no, he's not here. It's like, what do you mean he's not here? He has to be here. He was sent here and and they, they told us to stand aside because we waited and waited in a line and then they tell us to stand aside and they start whispering and then somebody from back and back comes up and then they yell across the room at us he's back in the cath lab like cath lab and they said we'll send a chaplain to you across the room and so finally this nasty mean old man comes up in this brown polyester suit and says I'll take you back to the waiting room and he walks us back there he tells us it'll be a while I'm like well what are they doing well they're looking at him we wait and we wait, and, I, uh, and then I say to him, you don't have to stay, you can go. We're fine, we'll wait. No, I have to stay. I, no, I want you to go. I'm agnostic, my son is atheist. He was sitting on my son's right-hand side, and I could tell my son was just, we wanted to talk to one another, but we didn't want him there. I was what, afraid to leave.
1: What was his job or his role?
2: He's a chaplain. Chaplain. He's supposed to give us comfort. So I I told him again, no, I want you to leave. It's my job. I have to stay. And I'm like, I'm not your job. I want you to leave. Well, he wouldn't leave. And he was agitating us because we couldn't speak. I wanted to talk to my son. I wanted, but I didn't want that man hearing what we had to say. So we just sit there in silence and pretty soon his device he had a folder and he kept it hidden from us and this device went off and he put it on speakerphone and there was a woman on the other line saying are you with the family of larry smith and he said yes and he gets up and as he walks away she starts talking to him on speakerphone and he but we can't hear and he walks into a hallway about 50 or so feet away gets done he comes back in he said well they're still with him back there and this went on three times and then finally each time he would put it on speaker phone and they would ask if he was with the family of so-and-so and he'd walk away from us and finally the third time he came and said the doctor's ready to talk to you and so he leads us back there And as we're going in the door, I turn around to him again and I've asked him and told him numerous times to leave. So I turn around, I put my arm across the door and I said, I don't want you in here. You need to leave now.
1: Well, things are about to get a lot weirder and more dangerous for Larry. Stay tuned for part two and find out if Jane keeps the Catholic hospital's chaplain out of the meeting with the doctor and find out how Larry and Jane A straight man and woman figure out that they are targets of homophobia. If you would like to support the podcast, you can hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or any of the other major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medicalerrorinterviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error or living with chronic complex illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.